think any of you uh, expected to uh, come to a little bit of a math class today, so if um, you don't mind, I'm going to grab an easel with a, with a board on it and teach you some math. Somebody tell me what the long side of the triangle is called. This long side of the triangle, what is it called? The hypotenuse, yes. You can say it however you want to, but that's, but yeah, there's different ways of saying it, uh, I suppose. <laughs> and yeah, the hypotenuse is always the long side opposite of a right angle triangle. How do you figure out what the length is of this going up if you have no measurements on the sides? What is, what is the, that called? The theory. Huh? Yeah, I suppose. Yes, the Pythagorean theorem. So what we have here, we have a side A and we have B, so <clears throat> what, would, what is the formula for that? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. So we'll work this out real quickly. 14 times 14 is 196. Thanks for asking. Num uh, 10 times 10 is 100. All right, add those two together. 296. What is the square root of 296? Man, you guys are smart. Yes, it's 17.2. So we know this right here, 17.2. I grabbed the wrong piece. I left my marker back yonder. Cohen, Cohen, can you give that marker that's on the bench, can you bring that up to me? Can you bring it up to me? I would need that more importantly later. But I'll move that, forget about that. So there's, that is how you figure out the hypotenuse. Now we got a circle, and uh, I believe I've got this upside down. I was going to work this out, but I just, after I actually worked through my sermon, I discovered I'd better not take too much time on this. So what we've got here, uh, and I ran across this at work a few times. Now believe it or not, children, Pay attention in math class. You might think you never have to use anything geometry-wise, but I wish I would have paid attention in school when I was your age because, uh, believe it or not, I used it all the time at work. I had a um, piece at work where I needed to have equal square. I was trying to make a six-sided six trim piece that goes around a post. And I needed to know, I, I wanted to have corners, and so I needed to start out with dividing a circle out in six equal parts. Anybody have any way, any idea on how to do this? If not, I'll teach you how. Just to run you through quickly. So what you do is, there, and there's other, there's numerous co more complicated methods of doing this and theories out there than what I'm gonna show you. But to begin with, 
you, uh, you begin with drawing whatever diameter circle you need. So here I drew a six inch diameter circle with this sweet little compass that I got. Said there's six inches. I set on the center, I draw a circle, and then I draw a straight line across the center. I, when I do that, I'll mark out every, however many spaces I, so this is 12 inches in diameter. 12 inch diameter, I want a six equal partitions. So I divided that up. I, every two inches I made a mark. Every two inches I have a mark. And um, so now I have point A and I have point B. So then I'll take my compass, I'll set it on point A, stretch it across to point B, which is 12 inches, or you can set your compass to 12 inches. I'll come below, make a mark down below, make a mark here, come over to point B and make another mark here. And then from there, I'll take another straight edge and mark from point C here through point the second one in from the edge. And where it intersects the circle right here is where I make a mark. And then from there, from there, all I have to do is, is uh, set my compass to point A to now point D. And then all I have to do is go around from the circle on each point and just make marks. And I just make marks all the way across. And now all I have to do is, is make my pie shapes like this. If I, you know, across the middle. And I'll go along. But you get the idea. So then if I, if I make marks from the center to there, I have equal spaces all the way around. And then from there, I just measured in between. I know what my distance is for my flat edges if you want to do that. So now you know how to do that. My point in, my point in all of this is the formulas. And we use a lot of formulas in our lives. We love knowing how to get to here by knowing this and this. Whether it's in business or farming, child training, you name it. If you want to get the result we want, we have to do a A and B to get to C. It's always easy to look at someone else's life and think that they have everything they need or they do everything right. And then we think to ourselves that the only way that we can get to that end result and receive abundantly above all that we ask or think, if we work out, if we find the right formula and work it out perfectly, then we will be able to replicate the exact results of those that we look up to. And if we aren't careful, this exact thought process uh, can carry over into our spiritual lives and even into the church. And we try to give people the correct formula and then help them work it out perfectly so they get the correct result. And the reason we do this is because it is our human nature. If you don't believe me, just do a Google topic search. And books on how to have a godly marriage, making more friends, or how to be an effective person, how to run a business. 
you name it, and there is a book written in formula style. The Bible even has different formulas throughout. Um, and this is because God knows that we have the tendency to follow formulas. And even, um, for example, in Deuteronomy, there are a bunch of if-then promises and warnings. The Mosaic Law has it spelled out that if you do this, then that will happen. Throughout Israel's history, if a king did good, then he got good. If he did bad, then he got bad. Psalms have a bunch, um, have a bunch of, the Psalms has a bunch of passages of promises in response to both good and bad acts. And Proverbs is littered with sayings declaring an outcome if a specific act is carried out. And of course, if you zoom out and look at the Bible as a whole, you can read and interpret the Bible um, how, no, sorry, as, as a whole, how you read and interpret the Bible will create a thought process for you that can, of course, be positive, but in some cases it can create questions, uh, doubts, disappointments because of your failures or shortcomings. Oftentimes we evaluate and judge ourselves uh, based on how we read the Bible or even on rules or standards that others have set in place based on their interpretation of Scripture. Now, disappointments and failures are closely tied with unmet expectations. I'll just briefly look at some unmet, uh, about this topic of unmet expectations. And I, I, when I was thinking about it, I was wondering, so when Christians that walk away from the faith, often it's some, because of doubts, but is it mostly because of unmet expectations? I say this because we have burnouts, uh, we have disappointments, and that can be because of unmet expectations, or it can create un unmet expectations. But through it all, we can work ourselves into dark places because we put pressure and expectations on ourselves that we think is the way of the church, our family, or how we think God wants us to live. And if only we live this certain way, then we will have, then we will live a true and upright life. So is this a result of relying too much on the law? I'm going to leave this thought, and then I'm going to circle back to it later. But, but next, I want to look at the formula that we should actually live by. And this is what I've labeled as Christ's formula. And this formula is actually first, started in, uh, first stated in um, Habakkuk 2.4. And then it's repeated and referenced a few times in New Testament, especially in Romans and Galatians. First one that I'm, um, the verse I'm going to read is Romans 1.17. It says, For in the gospel, <clears throat> a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, it is, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the formula I want <clears throat> to look at and spend a lot of time in is called, is the righteous living by faith. Uh, yes, I was going to do it right here. 
living by perfect handwriting. Thank you. So who, first, who are the righteous? And it can be simply stated as this, those that believe and receive Jesus into their hearts. And when we receive Christ into our hearts, righteousness is imputed into our hearts. A big point to clarify this, um, this is by saying you cannot become righteous by your own efforts. Meaning, you trying hard not to sin or live an unholy life does not make you live righteously. Actually, it's the opposite. Righteousness produces good works and freedom in Christ. There's another phrase in this verse that said, in that, um, said so the righteous shall live by faith. The, the other phrase is shall live. And this is just simply meaning living every day. Live how Jesus lived. He said, walk with me, work with me, watch how I live. And he did so with love, not in a hurry, and he never worried. And when he didn't know how to respond, he spent time with God. So it's a daily choice of recognizing that today I will live righteously. Now for some, it might be subconscious. But some of us, others, it's a moment throughout the day of saying to, my, to, um, to ourselves, Today, Jesus, I'm trusting you, and today I will live for you. Whether that's when you first set your feet on the floor, when getting out of bed, or when you pour your first cup of coffee, or when you step out the door on your way to work. Sometimes saying it in our head or out loud helps us actually to carry it out. And then moving on, by faith. That phrase, uh, by faith, um, turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3. And we'll try to break this down as best as we can. And now when I got to studying about some of this stuff, um, the, this idea of faith versus the law is a very complicated and very well-documented um, topic in the Bible, and so if you're interested, or if this piques your interest, just feel free to read through Romans, especially, it's, it's very full um, of, of this, of this um, thought, and even Galatians, so there's a lot in here, and I feel like I'm only going to just scratch the surface, so hopefully I do it a little bit of justice, but I'm going to read Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14, and then jump over to 21 through 25. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you? Because you observe the law, or, be you, or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as, righteous, as, as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. 
The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are, are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now jumping over to verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that would impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now there's a couple ways of looking at this, uh, but the theological question you can ask is, how does a Christian, when they cross the line into faith and they receive imputed righteousness, how do they move to imparted righteousness? And a simpler way to ask that is when you become a Christian and you realize you are forgiven and that God loves you. However, when you look at yourself and you still tend to hold grudges or you still have trouble with anger or fear or still have trouble with self-control, how do I move forward from knowing that I have righteousness in me? Or how do I become more humble? How do I become more honest? How do I become more, how do I have more love and joy? How do I actually grow? Paul says here that the way you grow in your Christian life is the exact same way you became a Christian. Let's first look at how you become a Christian or how you became a Christian. In verse 2, in verse 2, Paul asks, Receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you hear. And then he, asks, he answers that um, in verse 6 where he says, where he brings up Abraham. And he goes back to the story of the covenant that God made with Abraham. After the procedure, God laid out, basically laid out the gospel story to Abraham. God was going to save the whole world through one of Abraham's descendants, through one man. And Abraham believed, and it says here in verse 6, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now this credited, um, in the original Greek would translate best into reckon. Now I don't think they wanted it to sound like Paul here is from Texas, so they uh, said credited. Uh, <laughs> and so it actually is an accounting word. And it means, you can also say it as, it is counted. Uh, 
An example of how this credited towards would work is if you worked really hard and you earned a million dollars and then uh, that entire lump sum is transferred over into my bank account and it is now mine. I didn't do a thing to earn it, but it is mine uh, because it is in my name and the whole value is credited to me. And so here we see, as is pointed out, that Abraham, that as soon as Abraham believed righteousness was credited to him, as righteousness was credited to him, he didn't work for it. He did nothing but believe, and it was credited to him. When you stop relying on the law and you believe in Christ crucified, righteousness is credited to you. And righteousness is imputed unto you, and you are counted as perfect. You don't become perfect or as good or as loving, but you are counted as perfect or good or loving. And let's look at the question again of how do you live with this righteousness? Now, we believe that we are justified by faith, but we tend to think we become sanctified by trying really, really hard. We believe we receive imputed righteousness by looking at the gospel in Christ on the cross, and we believe it. It grabs a heart, and we rest in Christ. However, when it comes to advancing in the kingdom of God, we have trouble moving forward in dealing with forgiveness, growing in love and kindness. We feel like it's something we have to do. Look at verses 5 and 2. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? He, it is written here in present tense, believe, you because you believe. And then in verse 2, I would like, it says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? I read the wrong, yeah, that's right. I actually meant to read verse 1 where it says, Jesus is graphically portrayed to you. The work of Christ is continually graphically portrayed to you because you believe in Christ. And the key lies in this, this in verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Law-keeping and law-breaking is not the important thing. It's not that Christians don't observe the law. It says that he, he mentions relying it's, it's whether or not, I mean, it's saying that Christians should not rely on the law. You cannot make the law your hope or the law your saving grace. So are you anxious or are you touchy with criticism when you're criticized? Do you have trouble forgiving someone? When you fail, do you tend to fall apart? If you do, then I dare say you are still relying on the law. You're going back to works righteousness, and something else is functioning as your Savior. 
How do you know if this is the case? Oftentimes, it's something you are performing. If you only achieve this, then I will feel good about myself. Then I can grow in my Christianity. We try really, really hard ourselves. Instead, you need to look at Jesus and say, if I have him, then I don't need to perform that. You will always be a Christian behaviorist unless you understand what is going on here and what Paul is saying. He says, you, um, excuse me, you will be someone who never works on the motivations of your heart, but always works on your behaviors. You'll often be saying to yourself, I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't be guilty. I am out of control. And the list goes on and on. We tend to uh, bring ourselves down with that. And Paul says here, you think you believe in the Spirit, but you don't. There's a, another passage, and I'm going to take the time to read that in Romans 7. I'm not going to have much comments on it. I just want you to understand how it, how, how Paul addresses this struggling with sin when it comes to um, basing your struggles or your disappointments on the law or judging it all on the law versus abiding in the Spirit. I'm just going to breeze right on through it and, and hopefully you can read it later and understand a little better if you don't right now. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commanded, commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become dead to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law, sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, myself in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law 
of the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according <clears throat> to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share this sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So I'm going to uh, state this formula in my own words. This formula of righteous plus living by faith equals the righteous shall live by believing in the one who was faithful to God's plan to free us from the law. Living by faith is believing God like Abraham did. It's a heartfelt inner confidence that God is who he says he is and does what he says he will do. Faith is not relying on the law or by trying really hard under our own power to achieve what we think God requires. So what is the solution to this problem? I feel like Jesus addresses this and especially those that are dealing with either unmet expectations or disappointments in their life. Those that are feeling that they aren't living according to biblical standards, even though they are trying with all their might. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Jesus said, Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wants us to come to him and rest, rest in his presence. So I will finish this out by saying, Righteousness plus living by faith equals rest in Christ. And underneath this, you can say freedom from the law. Or in the law. 
you name it, but you get the idea. But the main point is rest in Christ. The righteous living by faith brings freedom from the law and rest in Christ. The law does not have to squander our spirits. Look at the story of Stephen. When he was being executed by stoning, it says his face shone like an angel. Stephen didn't look to heaven to see Jesus. I think he saw Jesus because he looked to heaven. What he displayed in that moment was that in the only court that mattered, he was acquitted and he was pardoned. He rested in Jesus and he asked God to forgive them. He wasn't just sitting there, I have to forgive these people because I'm a Christian. I have to forgive these people because I'm Christian. He said, God, forgive them. He rested in Christ. He led it up to God. Yes, we still have to try. We still have to stop sinning. We have to, um, we have to trust. And, um, but we have to also stop loving our sinful nature. But at the root, we have to reflect back, as Paul said here in Galatians, Root, reflect back to the beginning of faith and how you became a Christian and instead believe in God and stop relying on the law. So my, the thing I want you to remember is rest in Christ because when we are resting, Jesus is working.